Welcome to the Optimal Bio Podcast. At Optimal Bio, we don't just balance your hormones, we balance your whole body. Our conversations range from nutrition to medicine with an emphasis on wellness tips to support your health journey. If you like what you hear, find us on the web at OptimalBio.com and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Welcome to another edition of Optimal Bio's Wellness Podcast. Today, we're thrilled to have Mavis Jamal back with us today. Last time we heard from Mavis, she was Mavis Hodges. So before we get going, congratulations on your marriage. And why don't we talk a little marriage so far? How's it going? Thank you. Oh, it's going. It's going great. It's a good feeling. It's a good feeling to say that's my husband. So you got married in October. Yep. October 24th in the mountains of Asheville. It was beautiful. Very good. So you celebrated your first Thanksgiving and holiday season together. And was there any in-law fighting going on for the first go around? Oh, you know, there's always some in-law fighting. I just remember when I got married, we, I thought, I don't know why I thought this, that naturally we'd always go to my house, my family's house for all the holidays. And obviously uh, that was very short lived and realized right away that the first part of compromise is around the holidays. Oh yeah. Yeah. We definitely learned that lesson this, uh, this go round. So. Good deal. So today uh, we're going to talk to you about thyroid and um, you know, this month is thyroid awareness month and you know, you've been in optimal bio for a while and you're obviously, you know, working with patients and in addition to doing hormone replacement, you know, you're looking at, you know, doing overall wellness and thyroid's part of that. Um, so from a, I don't want to use the word phrase thyroid for dummies, but from a simple thyroid ABC, um, why don't you just talk a little bit about the thyroid and, you know, what it does and, you know, what are the complementary glands, I guess, you know, that, you know, are, are part of the endocrine system. And um, we'll kind of go from there. Well, I could literally talk about this for probably 5,000 hours, but don't want to bore everybody. So the quick and dirty. All right. So thyroid, in my opinion, is probably the most sensitive hormone gland that we have in the endocrine system. It's the most sensitive because it responds to everything in our environment, our external environment and our internal environment. So it's it's very responsive. And why is that, Jim? Because you think about it, as we've evolved, you know, if we're living in the tundra, which hopefully you're not, but if you're living in the tundra or you're living in the Amazon or you're living in the desert or wherever you're living, you have to adjust, you have to adapt, right? If you're starving, if you're fasting, if you're feasting, if you're stressed, your body has to adjust and adapt. And the thyroid is a huge piece of that because it drives energy, it drives metabolism, um, it affects every cell and system in the body. So I wouldn't say it's like the best gland in the endocrine system, but it is by far the most sensitive and delicate. And then from, again, from just a simplistic standpoint, where is it located in the, on the body? Right here. So in the throat area, obviously. Um, yes. If you can't see me, bottom of the throat. And then from a, it, it seems like today too, not to jump ahead a little bit, but it just seems like there's a lot of irregularities with thyroids in a lot of people from, you know, the young to the older generation. Um why is that? I mean, is there, is it the classic endocrine disruptors again with, you know, the environment and, you know, what's in our food supply and, and plastics and everything else? Or is there something else that's going on? I think it's a combination of, of all that, Jim, right? I mean, endocrine disruptors, yes, 
Um, there's also like a genetic predisposition to some of it, right? Um, and in fact, so I was, I was looking at a little bit of the prevalence since this is thyroid awareness. Let's first of all be aware how prevalent this is. Um, so the stats that I was looking at, you know, anywhere diagnosable thyroid disease by testing, um, which is a whole conversation in itself, which we can get to later, but about 10 to 20% of um, Americans are diagnosed with thyroid disease. But it's actually estimated that about 40 to 60% actually have it, a clinical diagnosis that's not diagnosed by actual labs. And that's because there's such a range in the labs. Um, and, you know, again, we can get into that in a minute. But, I mean, that's incredible. 40 to 60%, that's like half the population. That's a big chunk of people. And a lot of these people are obviously going around and they don't realize they have thyroid problems So um, because they're probably not being tested. And so what are some of the things that, you know, one would look for? Um, you know, obviously we talked a little bit about energy and um, you know, obviously if thyroid affects your metabolism as well. But, you know, if you're just going through life and, you know, you're working hard and, you know, you're, you're doing what you need to do, um, you know, are you more fatigued, for example, or are you, do you have more aches and pains? You know, what are, what are some of the typical symptoms that you would come across? Yeah, so it's interesting because I've seen such a wide variety in the presentation for patients. So um, it can affect you from anywhere from head to toe. So yeah, fatigue, energy level, definitely a big one. Um, it can affect your skin, it can affect your hair, it can affect your eyes, it can affect your cholesterol, it affects your ability to make sex hormones. Um, it affects your mood, so it can cause anxiety, depression. It kind of slows everything down if it's not working right. So think about constipation, you know, gut issues, that type of thing. Um, it just kind of slows everything down if it's not working too well. If it's working too well and you're producing too much, then you're gonna get the opposite end of that spectrum, right? Diarrhea, racing heart, high blood pressure, um, weight loss, right? You're gonna get the opposite end. So kind of walk us through the body in this case where, you know, wake up in the morning, um, what's your thyroid doing at that point in time? You're eating, what does your thyroid do at that point in time? What are the signals that are being sent, you know, from different parts of the body to, you know, trigger whatever the thyroid does to the body? It's all, it's ongoing all the time. It never stops, right? So like I was saying, like if you're fasting, then you're going to be more um, in the reverse part of your thyroid. So we can get a little bit uh, to the numbers and stuff too. So you've got, we kind of break this down a little bit. So you have free T3, which is your metabolically active thyroid hormone. And then you have reverse T3, which is, yes, I just said free T3, metabolically active, right? Yeah. Then you have reverse T3, which is like the brake or the stress. So you've got the gas pedal on one end and the brake on the other, right? And just like anything with hormones, you want like a delicate balance, right? You don't want too much gas, you don't want too much break, right? You kind of want a good balance. And so let's say if you're fasting, you haven't eaten for 18 hours, you're gonna be more on that reserved break side, right? Because you wanna kind of reserve metabolism, right? If you're not eating for a long time, you wanna reserve that. Whereas if you're feasting, you're gonna, you're gonna want it in the other direction. So again, it's always adjusting, whether we're working out, whether we're under chronic stress, whatever we're eating, whether we're pray praying or meditating or whatever it is, it's always adjusting to what the body needs. Yeah, it kind of acts like a regulator in your body. It, exactly, that's exactly what it does. I'll say it gets a little funky though when you have 
nutritional deficiencies or when you have those endocrine disruptors throwing everything off, you know, when you have cortisol issues from chronic stress or you have, you know, low testosterone, if you have low cholesterol even, right? So there's all these things that can throw it off, but toxins and endocrine disruptors, like you said, is, is a big one, but it's always adjusting to our body. All right, you mentioned some of these lab ranges before. So if you're looking at the free T or the reverse T, um, you know, if you're going to a regular PA like you were before you came to Optimal Bio and you just tested for thyroid, what labs would they run compared to what we would run at Optimal Bio? Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So you have traditional medicine and then you have more holistic functional medicine, right? So where I practiced before, for thyroid screening, what is routinely checked is what's called TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. That is your brain talking to your thyroid. So specifically the pituitary gland telling your thyroid, hey, we need to produce thyroid hormone here. Um, so a typical screening test in primary care is your TSH. That's it, which is a terrible, terrible indicator. That's our screening tool, but it doesn't tell us anything about what is your thyroid making. So at the level of the thyroid, you're making T4, which is your inactive thyroid hormone. T4 has to be converted into free T3, like I said. But like I was saying earlier, it could either go free T3 or reverse T3. Like it has an option, right? And it's gonna change. Um, but in primary care, sometimes I would order the T4 with the TSH um, if the insurance covered it. And so, okay, that's great. Now we know how much the thyroid's producing. But A, we don't know how it's converting. And B, that's not telling us anything about if that's getting to the cell because it's the free T3 that gets to the cell, right? That's what drives metabolism energy. It's not the T4. So do we care about what the T4 is? Yes, but that's not the only piece of the puzzle. But in primary traditional care, you either get a regular TSH or a TSH with a T4, which is sad. So then if your primary care lab, the one that they run is, let's say, abnormal, um, what is the course of treatment for that? And then what, how does that affect then the T3? Well, nobody knows because they don't check it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so so all of the synthetics treatments for thyroid, so, you know, in school we were learned, you know, Synthroid, levothyroxine, which is synthetic T4. That's how you traditionally treat thyroid disease. So you check a TSH if it's high or if you have a T4 and it's low and someone, you diagnose somebody with hypothyroidism. In primary care, that's that's it. That's that's all we need to say, you have hypothyroidism. We don't check antibodies. You know, you didn't do that in, in primary care because um, we didn't care. We're going to give you synthetic T4. That's what we're going to do. And then when we follow up, we're either going to check your TSH or your TSH and T4 to see where is your T4 level and is your TSH doing what it's supposed to do. And that's it. We don't look at T3. You didn't even care about T3. So it wasn't until I started studying functional medicine that I started learning about all this. But even before then, like I knew there had to have been another piece to this puzzle because I put so many patients on Synthroid and Levothyroxine. They come back in, their labs change, but they didn't change. They still feel the same. And so I'm like, hmm, like what's going on here? I mean, some patients, yeah, they would feel a little bit better, but most of them did not. And then some people, they just look at a lab and they're like, oh, now I'm normal and they feel better, right? Placebo. Um, but, but most just did not feel better. So I knew there was like another piece that I was missing. So when I started delving in, you know, two, three years ago with the thyroid and learning more about it, then I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. You have to check the other stuff. 
So then you brought it up earlier about the difference between hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Yeah. Hyper just means your thyroid's producing too much. Hypo means it's producing not enough. That's it. Okay. And then if you're, it seems to me that, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of people have hypothyroidism as opposed to hyperthyroidism. Is that a fair assessment or is that not true? I'm not sure the actual stats on that. I've never treated a hyperthyroid patient and I don't ever plan on it. Um, but typically what I've seen in the past seven years that I've diagnosed with just screening is usually hypo. Yeah. But the actual stats on that, I couldn't tell you. Okay. And then the goal for the treatment of hypo is to turn it back into more of a hyper scenario. No, just it's called euthyroid, meaning just stable in the middle, balanced. Right, but if it's producing less, you want it to get it to produce a little bit more. You do, but not too much. Correct, right. You, um, yeah, I didn't mean to say you. we want to get you back into hyperthyroidism. We just want to speed it up a little bit to get you back to, to normalcy. But if you do it incorrectly, you can cause that. So you really just, again, it's a delicate balance. So Hashimoto's, which is a common malady, um, is that hypo or hyper? That is hypo. And that's, that's one of the most common um, disorders that we see in America. And so what Hashimoto's is, it's, it's an autoimmune disorder. So autoimmune being, meaning our own immune system is attacking ourself. It basically gets confused. So our immune system has always been to protect us, right? That's what it's supposed to do. And that's what it intends to do. But sometimes it'll get a little bit confused, which could be a genetic predisposition that we have a gene that makes us more apt to getting it confused. Um, so for whatever reason, it gets confused and then our immune system makes a protein, an antibody, and that starts to attack our thyroid tissue. And then how do we combat that? I could talk another hour on that. <laughs> we got plenty of time, so. With autoimmune disease, and again, just to clarify for anybody who's listening, you can have hypothyroidism without having autoimmune Hashimoto's disease. So that's a great point. So how do you know, though, what the difference between hypo, traditional hypothyroidism, and then Hashimoto's? By checking the antibodies and looking at the labs, which, again, is what we do here at Optimal Bio. So um, we check a TSH, a free T3, a free T4. We look at your reverse T3, and then we check three antibodies that could be attacking your thyroid. And we also look at some of the ratios to kind of optimize some of those functions. Um, but it's critical. So, you know, back to my point about primary care, not to get off tangent here. But when I would diagnose with hypothyroidism, we didn't check anything else. That was it. So, and that's that's so even if I'm throwing a hormone replacement at someone, I'm not treating the root cause, right? If someone has an autoimmune disorder, you have to attack the antibodies. You have to get the antibodies down because if you don't, you're not treating it appropriately. So a lot of people go misdiagnosed and undertreated for years. Um, so yeah. So fast forward to what we do here, we do a full extensive thyroid panel. Um, to see, because we need to know. The treatment for regular hypothyroidism varies. It's, it's different, right? So if you have autoimmune disease, it's a different treatment. So with autoimmune disease, it's kind of like th three prongs here. Typically, you have a genetic predisposition, typically. Then you have a trigger, some sort of trigger or toxin or stress or something that you know triggers the body. And then you have inflammation. So inflammation or leaky gut, which a lot of times the inflammation is in the gut. So there's like three different things that all kind of have to happen to complement each other to cause this, this autoimmune disorder and the thyroid. 
So what we do is one, we want to attack the inflammation. So we got to decrease inflammation in the body. You can do that with diet, lifestyle, supplements, and certain medications. Um, obviously, if someone has gut issues or leaky gut or celiac disease, which is also a common trigger, you want to obviously address that. Um, Gluten is highly inflammatory for the thyroid and the thyroid does not like it. So if anybody has thyroid issues, I'm always telling them, cut the gluten out. There's other triggers too, but that's a big one. Um, and then basically we're just supporting the thyroid with the nutrients that it needs. So um, zinc, selenium, iodine, vitamin A, vitamin D, iron, B vitamins, you know, vitamin C, all the things that the thyroid needs to do its job well. Because um, a lot of the times we'll see you know, patients making um, a decent amount of T4, but they're not converting well to T3. So, and there's different patterns with thyroid. I love thyroid, I could talk about thyroid all day. Um, but anyway, there's different patterns with thyroid. And so basically you, you identify the pattern and then you address the root cause of that pattern. And you basically treat based on what we're seeing clinically as well as in the labs. But definitely autoimmune is treated much differently than just regular hypothyroid, which is why it's important to get your labs checked. Yeah, you, you brought up a, I think, a scary scenario previously where patients go in, they get tested, but they're only being tested for one thing. And they go on these synthetic medications and they don't feel any better. So eventually, because they don't feel any better, they continue to go back to the doctor. And then eventually they get probably kicked over to an endocrinologist. And then hopefully they finally run the appropriate tests. And then hopefully put them on a treatment plan that makes them feel better. Um, while they're doing that, though, does it is there any increased damage or any, you know, can can the autoimmune piece of it become more acute, you know, as it becomes as it goes untreated for over time? Over time, yeah, for sure, yeah, and it is scary, right? And so, like that when you were saying that, made me think about a story. So. I don't know, 10, uh, 10 years ago or so. Um, this is just a story of traditional medicine. <laughs> so I had an elevated antibody and everybody I went to see, they're like, we have no idea why this antibody is elevated, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so I ended up bouncing around seeing like an endocrinologist, a couple of rheumatologists. Anyway, one of the rheumatologists finally, none of them had an answer for me. Right, none of them had an answer. But I'll never forget, this one rheumatologist looked at me and she said, well, you don't have an issue now. You don't have a disease now, but you're, I think you're at an increased risk of developing an autoimmune disease some point in your life. And most likely it'll be thyroid. And that's all she told me. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. That's really what I want to hear at 19 years old, right? So. Yeah. Plus, what do you do with that? Yeah. And that just always sticks with me. Well, that's why I've always been driven to, to learn more and educate myself, right? But that just always sticks with me because that's exactly what traditional care is. It's like, it's waiting for the bomb to blow and then try to look backwards and figure out where it came from and then just slap a Band-Aid on it, right? Whereas what we're doing here that's functional and holistic, we're trying to catch these antibodies before they turn into Hashimoto's, right? Like, because if someone has a predisposition for that and they have a, a you know, they're at risk for that based on their labs, they're a ticking time bomb for autoimmune disease. All they need is one infection to set something off or a little bit of inflammation or a little bit of stress to set it off. So we're just being much more preventative and thorough 
and not saying, oh, well, you're probably gonna get this one day, but well, we'll just sit here and wait for it to happen, then we'll treat you. So let's go into a little, I don't know, scientific technical dive for a minute or so on the actual antibody test. So, you know, when one gets an antibody test, um, you know, usually the number comes back out and says, you know, greater than 30, less than 30. You know, there's a range in some cases where range may be anywhere from 30 to 150. And let's say somebody's antibodies are in the 30 to 150 range. Let's say they're at 60 um, and it says normal, right? Do you view that response from that lab as normal or do you look at it and say, man, you got a lot of antibodies that are fighting, you know, something in your, in your body at this point in time. So, you know, if you were at 31 and the, the range is 30 to 150, then yeah, you're better. That's the better normal than being at 60 and normal. So can you walk us through that whole antibody thing and the thought process where when you look at something, you know, somebody like me might say, Hey, I'm normal. I got my thumb up and you're like, yeah, you're normal, but, um, you know, you, you're producing antibodies, which in some cases may not be that great, right? Exactly. Yes. And so, yeah, yeah. So there are these ranges. Okay. And speaking of ranges, before I answer your question, um, there are optimal ranges and then there are normal ranges, meaning this is what the average population is. Again, the average population that potentially 40 to 60% have hypothyroidism, this is what's normal. Okay, so so what we look at here is we're looking at optimal ranges, not what the average population is, especially given that the majority population is not well. So one, keep that in mind. But two, when it comes to antibodies, there are different cutoffs, right? And it drives me nuts because it's like, oh, well, do you just have like a little bit of Hashimoto's or do you just have a lot of it, right? And so it's like, yeah, that drives me nuts. And our our optimal ranges are different than, than the lab cores. So, and it's not off by a lot for Hashimoto's, but it is a fine line. So it's, it's I always go back and forth with like, how do I explain this to patients? Because, oh, they're like, five to 10 points off from me saying, yes, you have an autoimmune disease, right? And in practice, I've seen people reverse autoimmune disease with diet and lifestyle and, and you know hormone replacement therapy or whatever they need. I've seen this. So I know that it can be done. So it's like a spectrum. With autoimmune disease, it's like a spectrum. So on one end, you have Hashimoto's. On the other, you have Graves. So Graves' disease is when you have a lot of, a lot of thyroid hormone going on. Hashimoto's is when you have too little, right? People can swing on that pendulum. So some people will have graves and then they'll have Hashimoto's or they'll go back and forth. And so when it comes to a specific number, yes, it's hard to explain and it drives me nuts, but people can change very quickly from one extreme to the other. But regardless, if you're producing any amount of antibody, to me, that means, hey, something's going on in the body. Something's irritating your thyroid. Let's try to figure out what it is. But realistically, though, you're never going to be at zero, for example, for antibodies. You're always going to have some antibodies that are in your, in your body. In your some people will be undetectable. And then some people will just have a little amount. Yeah. But in your case, if let's say, just hypothetically, you know, I'm just making this up, but the range goes from, you know, three to 10 as the normal. And somebody's running in there. Somebody's around eight, you know, from a lab perspective you would look at that and say, hey, you have Hashimoto's or you, 
you know, it looks like you got some inflammation and you got some other things going on there that you need to correct. So we know you look at the whole picture, but at the end of the day, uh, from a normal range, if, you know, somebody's around four out of, you know, from three to 10 and the other person's at eight from three to 10, they're technically normal, both of them, but one is rolling an eight, one is rolling a four. So then you're saying, I would think based on what you've said before, that the eight patient really should be doing some mitigating some things to get that number lower again from an antibody perspective. Yeah. And then also look at their family history too. So if they're, you know, if they have an increased risk from a genetic standpoint, potentially those are the people that need to work much harder to prevent these things. Right. And then you look at their other health problems. If they have gut issues, nine times out of 10, they're going to have thyroid issues. Right. And you can talk about that too, if you want. I love talking about the gut. We'll go in there next. But yeah, so you just kind of look at the whole clinical picture. If someone's having symptoms, I don't care less what their number is. Like, I'm going to, you know, go full force, right? So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely part of, the, part of the puzzle. But that's why medicine is so fun. It's like an art. Obviously, there's a science to it. But it's, it's really more of an art. So you talk about symptoms. And I know you're, you have to be a psychologist and an artist and a trick questionnaire questioner in order to get a true sense of what the patient's going through. But it kind of reminds me when you go to the doctor sometimes and they give you that little stupid uh, pain thermometer, zeros, no pain, and tens, you know, out of this world. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody, it, this is a totally subjective test because pain is totally different for a lot of different people, right? So my one might be somebody else's six or vice versa. Um, so when somebody's saying, man, I'm not, I feel great, you know, um, I'm not really symptomatic, you know, um, what do you do? How do you dig deeper, you know, with a patient? So are you saying if someone's labs are really wacky, but they're like, I feel fine? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that they, um, maybe they're quasi wacky, but they're not like wacky wacky. And, you know, that person's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm a little tired, but it doesn't affect me in my life. Like I'm, I'm doing everything I want to do. I, I don't have any issues anywhere. Um, you know, I run hard every day and you know, um, I'm, I'm good, but you know, I can't stay awake till 10 o'clock. I have to go to bed at nine, but I'm okay because nothing else in my life, you know, is down. Um, but you're like, you're looking at the lab and you're like, yeah, but you're, you're, it looks like your antibody is a little bit high and, um, you know, you, you're kind of borderline at this point in time. So how do you, get the patient, I guess, to really be more sensitive to their, to their symptoms. I think a lot of that is, I mean, you've heard the saying mind over matter, right? I mean, mental fortitude goes a long way. I mean, you could have crap hormones, but still have drive and determination and willpower stronger than anybody else. So I think a lot of it is just mental. Right. And so it's for, for me, from that perspective, I would just focus on like, OK, what are the patient's goals? And then I would try to get them to be more self-aware and then kind of gear the treatment towards their goals because they need to be invested in what they're doing. If they're not invested or motivated, they're not going to make changes. Right. Correct. Correct. And the fact that they're there, I guess, is you know indicative that they do want to make a change. You hope so talking to you you know nobody's going to bed at night thinking about coming in to see you every day about thyroid right you know most people most people don't want to see doctors <laughs> so let's pivot to gut gut seems to be 
I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, and everything you see and read these days is, you know, gut, gut, gut. You know, it's like one person started talking about gut, you know, 10 years ago now. It seems like the whole world in the podcast world is talking about gut these days. So, well, of course, man. Um, Peter Atia, Dr. Brennan, um, Sean Baker, you know, every, everybody that you we've been exposed to is, talks about gut. So anyhow... Tell me how the first off the gut correlates with the thyroid, and then second, secondarily, is the gut being overplayed these days? No, the gut is not being overplayed these days. Okay, and in fact, I think it was we've been talking about gut for a long time, but I think you just hear more about it now because of the growing amount of research that's coming out. And it's like it's like things we knew before, but again, it's just the more research you get, the more research you get, you're just like, that kind of solidifies everything. And then it just takes time to get it to, to who it needs to get to, right? That information. Um, oh God, again, I could just talk about this forever. Yes, there's a lot of stuff coming out, but if you go to a traditional doctor still, very rarely are they doing a food assessment and talking to you about gut still. So it still has not hit mainstream medicine yet. Not mainstream medicine. But if you, so like I'm studying through the Institute of Functional Medicine, it's there, but it's not handed in medical school, right? Or PA school or wherever you go. It's not part of the traditional medical curriculum. But if you seek further education, like you know I've done, then, then it is there. So depends on, yeah. But yeah, if you go to a traditional, well, depending on where you go, but typically if you go to a traditional office, they're not going to be like, hey, let's talk about your gut. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, to answer your question, so, wow, I could talk about this forever. There are so many things that the gut does. Um, but I think with respect to the thyroid, you know, well, let's talk about hormones for a second because your gut health and your microbiome and hormones are like brother and sister, right? They're either getting along or they're not. So you have to have good gut health, a good microbiome. Microbiome means all of the, like the, the balance of the bacteria and, and the even maybe parasites. I don't know, whatever you have in your gut. There's <laughs> fungus, I don't know. Um, there's a lot going on in there. So there's like this, again, it's about delicate balance. So you could have too much bad bacteria or sometimes too much good bacteria. And anyway, so that's what I mean by microbiome is, is all the living things inside of your intestines. Um, so all of those things affect your ability to make hormones, not just sex hormones, but we're talking about brain hormones, it affects your ability to break them down. It affects your mood. So all of those things also affect your thyroid. But I think the biggest thing for thyroid that we see is anytime you have inflammation in the gut, which could be from a numerous amount of things, um, or even if you have leaky gut, which seems to be the most common thing that we're seeing in America. And that's because um, our food is not great. And that's saying it nicely. Um, so our, our food supplies are not great. We're so inflamed, we're so toxic. You know, we're being exposed to chemicals, you know, our drinking water, you know, if you're not drinking filtered water or breathing fresh air that hasn't been polluted. I mean, there's so many things we're exposed to and stress is one that can cause leaky gut too. So it's an endless list. So most people to some degree probably have leaky gut. So what the heck is leaky gut? So leaky gut is when the lining of your intestine, cause it's like a tube, right? From head to butt. Does everybody get that? Okay. 
and there's a tube. <laughs> so the lining of the tube is supposed to be very strong, you know, very strong. Nothing should be able to get through that shouldn't. Um, it should be nice and lovely and have great amounts of bacteria and, and the good ratios and it should just be a happy place. But when you have leaky gut, there's inflammation and it, there's literally leakiness. So it kind of looks like this, right? It's not like this, it's like this. So things are getting through that are not supposed to get through, right? So if you have proteins coming through that's not been digested and it's getting into your bloodstream, then your immune system starts attacking that. Why? Because it's not supposed to be there. And that's what the immune system is supposed to do. It's supposed to help protect you. So it starts attacking these proteins and making antibodies. And it also triggers this whole inflammatory cascade in the body, right? So um, I feel like when it comes to thyroid, that's one of the main drivers. But again, there's so many things that cause leaky gut. And then you have this inflammatory process and then you have this these antibodies that then can turn into full-blown you know, autoimmune disease that affect many tissues in the body, so. So you talked about leaky gut. How do you know you have leaky gut? There's tests for it. So there's there's blood tests you can do. There's poop tests you can do. Well, okay. So, you know, you, you do a stool test and, you know, it comes back and, you know, it's showing some abnormalities, um, you know, and then, you know, where do you go from there, right? You start testing for gluten intolerance and everything else, you know, are you... So then if you saw somebody did that test and, you know, you thought there might be a thyroid issue, would you just jump right away to do a thyroid test? Probably would have already checked their thyroid. You would have already. <laughs> yeah. That's first before that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime you, you know, see a patient that has thyroid issues, you want to think, okay, is there anything in the gut going on? And like I said, anytime that has, anybody has um, Hashimoto's antibodies, I always tell them to cut gluten out. When it comes to Hashimoto's, gluten and dairy are the two biggest triggers that can trigger Hashimoto's typically. Like I said, there could be other food triggers. So people could be sensitive to anything. Like I'm sensitive to eggs, which is, I hate that because I love eggs. Um, but everybody's different, right? So unless you get a test to figure that out or, or do an elimination diet to figure that out, which is actually the best way to do it, um, you won't know. So everybody's sensitivities or, or allergies may be a little bit different. But typically speaking, the data shows that gluten and dairy are the two biggest triggers for thyroid autoimmune. So let's talk about graves because I, I, you hear that a lot, but you know, it seems like it's, you know, I don't know if it's less diagnosed or it's just not, you know, maybe it's treated differently or whatever. Um, totally different treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned a lot with autoimmune and Hashimoto's, you know, food playing a part and potentially healing or reducing the inflammation. Does food also play a part on the on graves as well? I mean, it has to. And to be honest, I've never treated graves. But just thinking about it logically, it has to, right? Because at the end of the day, your thyroid still needs the same nutrients to do its job well, right? I mean, it, it needs to regulate. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, so, for example, like iodine. So, I, you know, just reading the last stat I saw on that, it was estimated that about 38% of Americans are deficient in iodine, which is pretty incredible, right? And iodine is critical for thyroid function, right? If you don't have adequate iodine, you're not making enough T4, and then you're not able to convert to T3, right? And so it all comes down to nutrients and your diet and, and, and getting the right nutrients so that your thyroid can 
performing the way it would. So although the although hyperthyroid has a different treatment, at the end of the day, you still need the same nutrients for your thyroid to work the way that it's supposed to work. Okay, that makes sense. The this dairy. So what is it in dairy? Is it the enzymes in dairy? Is it you know? Is there something particular within dairy that um, are the impurities now where they've you know, homogenize and pasteurize everything to the point where there's no nutri nutrients left in dairy. What is it about dairy that triggers, you know, thyroid issues? So with respect to the autoimmune process, again, it all just goes back to the leaky gut, right? So if our gut was strong, these proteins should, should not be getting through. But since they're getting through, that's when the immune system starts to attack it. So it's not that there's necessarily anything wrong. Well, I could go on about conventional dairy. But it's not anything that's wrong with the actual substance itself. It's just that it's getting in the wrong place, and then our immune system is causing that inflammatory cascade. Just jumping back to iodine real quick, what are some of the foods that are, are richer in iodine? Seafood is a really good source for iodine. Um, but the thing is, is and then we know we're not getting it enough in the food supplies because it all has to do with the soils and you can actually look at a map online and it's called like the goiter belt and you can see like what areas of soils have sufficient iodine but how many people do you know have a garden in their backyard and are eating food out of their soil right you're usually getting it from a, well me too but you know what i mean <laughs> jim you know we're not normal <laughs> yeah my wife has got a great garden in, in the summertime i love that i love that um but yeah, so the truth is, I mean, and there's other food sources for it as well, but we're not getting it like we were before. And again, it depends on your soil content, depends on where you're getting your food. If you're getting food from a grocery store, how long has it been since it even touched the soil? It's been all washed off, especially if it's not organic. You're getting chemicals with it too. So um, we're just not eating food from the ground. And also, I think up until what the early '90s, uh, iodine was in bread, and, and oh, now God. it's been replaced. Oh yeah! Not only are we getting enough, but then we've been exposed to things called bromides. So yeah, you're talking about the bread. So they took out the iodine, put the bromides in there. But we're not just being exposed to bromides in water and food. Because you're talking about chlorine, fluorine, chlorine, fluorine. These are bromines. So it's in our water. It's in our food. It's in flame retardants. Um, which is in everything you buy, unless you buy non-toxic furniture, which, you know, costs an arm and a leg. Worth the investment, I must say. Um, but yeah, so we're being exposed to all these bromides, which is displacing iodine, right? Because they competitively inhibit for the same receptor, the bromides and, and iodine. So, so yeah, that's another part of it. Again, it's that environmental aspect in addition to the change in the soils and the change in the diet and how we're eating processed foods and yeah so a little side note here i saw the other day somebody had mentioned that kale is not good for you what are your thoughts on that again it all comes down to your gut microbiome and i keep saying that but that's literally what it comes down to because you think about it wherever you grow up and eat from because technically we're supposed to be eating out of the ground where we came from you know this whole like getting your grocery store and getting your groceries delivered like that's affecting our microbiome. But naturally, you know, you would be eating food from your natural environment and that's gonna shape your microbiome, right? So some people can handle kale, some people can. I mean, it all goes down to what are your genetics? What were you made to eat? 
based on your ancestry, right? Because everybody's different. And then where are you living and where are you getting your food? So I don't think that it's, I don't ever like to say a food is bad or good. It's just some people aren't supposed to eat certain things and some people can do fine with it. Again, it's about balance, moderation, right? Yeah, true. But are you saying that if your ancestry came from, let's say, you know, England and France, um, that you're then more susceptible to a diet from that region than, let's say, you know, you trying to get on a Greek diet, you know, with, with foods that are coming from, from that part of the world? I believe your genetics and your ancestry plays a huge role in, in what your diet should be. Yeah, for sure. So if I came from Ireland, should I just eat potatoes all day? Mm. I had potatoes and cabbage today for lunch. That made me think of that. It's <laughs> a great probiotic, that cabbage. And no, there's a lot of genetic testing now. So nutrigenomics is actually something I'm really interested in. And what that is, is basically looking at your genetic makeup and figuring out what is the best things for you to eat. Now, again, there's that huge environmental piece that's going to change your genetic expression. We know that food changes our genetic expression. So just because your DNA says this doesn't mean that's the phenotype you're expressing or that that's what's actually happening. So you really have to look at environment and your genetics to really figure out what, you know, what, the, what the best diet is for you. Okay, so for thyroid, autoimmune, Hashimoto's, um, real quick, you know, if you had to recommend a diet, what would it be? What kind of supplements would you take? What kind of exercise would you be doing? Kind of walk us through a little, you know, quick and dirty uh, you know, plan for someone with autoimmune. There's like a basic package, I will say, that everybody should be on. But then outside of that, again, it's very individualized of, of what should happen. But you know, if, if they have autoimmune, you want to attack inflammation. So you want to have a very you know, whole foods diet, not a lot of processed stuff, not a lot of sugars, not a lot of alcohols. Please give up the gluten. Um, dairy if it's a trigger for you and then you know find out what your food sensitivities are you know there's really great tests you can get now or you can do an elimination diet which takes you know a few weeks but it's the best way to do it um, supplements are important so like I was saying iodine very important zinc and selenium those two are needed to they actually help the enzyme that converts T4 to T3 so if you don't have adequate amounts of those three those are my three favorite zinc, selenium and iodine if you don't have adequate amounts of those, you're not making enough T4 and you're not converting enough to T3. So I, I always recommend supplementing with those three at minimum. And then, you know, inflammation. So if you've got inflammation, fish oil, I like to recommend fish oil a lot, um, but there's all types of natural anti-inflammatories you could take. If they have gut issues, you wanna assess that. So, but baseline, you really wanna attack inflammation and zinc and selenium and iodine and vitamin D and iron. There's so many, I keep going. Um, but those are kind of the main ones that I look at initially to say, okay, these are what you should supplement with. These are the foods you should be eating or not eating, more importantly. Um, and then outside of that, it's just very individualized based on, on what the patient wants. I mean, as far as exercise goes, obviously you wanna be active. Exercise helps any hormone issue with sensitivity. So you can have hormone resistance whether that's insulin resistance or thyroid hormone resistance or whatever it is, what that means is here's the cell and here's the hormone, okay? <laughs> the hormone wants to attach the cell and talk to it. But if you have resistance, then the cell is gonna be like, nope, we're not hanging out today. And then it's not allowed to connect. They're not allowed to communicate. They're not allowed to talk, right? So 
Um, exercise helps with that across the board, whether that's hormone related, insulin or whatever it is. Exercise helps that cell be more sensitive to receiving the input from the hormone. Um, vitamin A is also very effective for that. Vitamin A is tricky to, to supplement in some people, especially women, because it could you know affect um, fertility and things. But um, think about your red, orange vegetables um, and also like collard greens. So those are some good examples of vitamin A, but, but there's so many different ways to approach it, but those are kind of the main nutrients um, that we focus on as a, as a minimum. So what's the synergy between testosterone, estrogen, and thyroid? Oh my God, that, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. So, well, okay, so let's back up to the adrenal glands, cause that's kind of like, some people call it like the mother of the hormones or whatever, which some people would disagree with that. But um, so your adrenal glands are located on top of your kidneys. They secrete a bunch of different hormones. Um, they, they secrete a lot of sex hormones. They also secrete your stress hormones. They secrete a lot of things. Um, but if your adrenal glands are not working well and you're not secreting these hormones, you're automatically not gonna produce good thyroids, right? Because you need the sex hormones um, you know, which is what we specialize in here, to have a optimal functioning thyroid. And in fact, I just saw this guy earlier today and within six weeks of starting the testosterone therapy, his T3 went from 2.2 to 3.4. That's amazing. And all he did, he didn't do any of the supplements I recommended. All he did, <laughs> except for vitamin D. All he did was take vitamin D and start testosterone. Think about how great he'd be if he did the other ones, right? Um, but that's just how strong of a connection it is. So when you look at the adrenal glands, that's why stress management is so important because if you're pumping out a lot of cortisol because you're stressed, that's taken away from your body's ability to make your sex hormones, which makes you feel good and supports your thyroid and all these other things. And then um, I don't know if you asked about estrogen, but let me talk about that. I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, so estrogen, the most one of the most common things we see here are estrogen dominance, meaning people either have too much estrogen or they're not breaking it down well enough or it's imbalanced or whatever. So if that's happening, that's actually decreasing your body's ability to convert T4 to T3, the free T3. Remember, that's what's driving metabolism. So too much estrogen is hindering the thyroid, right? So again, it's all about this balance, right? So low hormones can affect it, high hormones can affect it. We need to find this happy medium. Um, and then also you need a good amount of T3, a good amount of thyroid hormone in conjunction with cholesterol. So why cholesterol is so important to go into the cell and make your sex hormones in the mitochondria. So they're all connected. They all need to be flowing very nicely and balanced you know, if, and I always tell patients this, I was like, they're like friends. If one's not happy, the other one's not happy. So if one's off, they're all going to be off. So they're, they're all connected. Why don't we talk a little bit about cholesterol then? For the audience again, what does it actually do? And why is it better to have more cholesterol than less cholesterol? So cholesterol, going back to hormones specifically, <clears throat> Cholesterol literally turns into something called pregnenolone, which people also call the mother of all hormones. Why is that? Because if you don't have cholesterol and you don't have pregnenolone, 
you can't get converted into any other things like progesterone, testosterone, estrogen, right? Because that's where it comes from. So if you're not producing enough cholesterol, you're not producing enough hormones. It's just one plus one equals two, right? Um, cholesterol is so important. It's important for the structure of the cell, the cell integrity. Um, fat, we need we need fat, we need cholesterol. It's so important. It literally affects every cell in the body. So I, I can't say that enough. But But yeah, as far as hormone synthesis, it's the foundation. You know, you've got the cholesterol, you've got testosterone, you've got your thyroid all working together to produce energy in the cell in the way that it's supposed to. If you don't produce energy in the cell, cell's not working, it's not functioning well, then you can have mitochondria to function and all these other things. So, yeah. And then where does progesterone fit in? So pregnenolone turns into progesterone. And then from there, that turns into testosterone and estrogen. Um, but as far as, what do you mean? Do you mean what does it do in the body? Is that what you mean? Well, that, but also are, are, don't some people with um, thyroid take progesterone? If they're not producing it, because if you have low functioning thyroid, you may not produce enough progesterone. And that's one reason why having your thyroid stabilized is, is important for fertility, right? Because you need a, a, a certain amount of progesterone to maintain, not just to get pregnant, but to maintain a pregnancy, a viable pregnancy. Um, so yeah, that it's all it's all connected. Mm-hmm. All the more reasons to make sure your hormones are always in balance, right? That's right, and it's a full time job. So getting back to the optimal levels of T four, T three, and other markers from a numerical standpoint, if you can articulate it, what is optimal compared to what is normal if somebody were to be tested the same way that we tested Optimal Bio? So what is optimal? So LabCorp's range is like pretty big for thyroid. And it's interesting because you know I've only been doing medicine for seven years, but even in my short time of doing this, I've seen the TSH change, which is just interesting, the range for that. Um, but typically like a traditional thyroid panel will say anything between like 0.5 and 4.5 is normal. Um, optimally though, it should be somewhere probably between 0.5 and two, no greater than two, less than two, right? And what's interesting is when someone's pregnant and you gotta be thinking about pregnancy now, when someone's pregnant and has thyroid disease, where do they treat their TSH to? Do you know? It's a quiz. I don't. Less than two. Okay, so doesn't that tell you like, Oh, let's, if a woman is pregnant, we have to do this. But yet, and I just had a patient the other day, she was like, well, when I got, when I had my baby, after I had my baby, they switched me back over to the other med because, you know, they were like, oh, you know, it's different because you're not pregnant now. Like what? So anyway, if it's supposed to be that way in a pregnant lady, shouldn't that, that seems like optimal health to me. But anyway. So that's just one example, but you know, the ranges, yeah, they, they can just drive you nutty, but yeah, so definitely below two. And a lot of people, speaking of TSH, a lot of people get freaked out when the TSH goes low. And again, LabCorp, I can't remember the exact ranges of what they say is low, but technically what is considered TSH suppression is anything less than 0.03. Okay, that's a pretty small number. So sometimes we'll have a patient and they'll get to 0.3, let's say 0.3, because the cutoff 
is 0.5 and they'll be at 0.3. Their numbers look amazing. They feel amazing. They're not having any side effects, but they're like, oh, my primary care is that my TSH was too low and that you're over treating me. No, if you look at the clinical studies for TSH suppression and for long-term outcomes that are negative, which can be if you suppress the TSH too much, um, it can affect your bone mineral density and cardiovascular stuff. It's 0.03. That's what all the studies say. So I don't care what LabCorp says. I'm going to look at what the studies show. So people will freak out when they see that. But, you know, again, it's about the science. Let's look at what the studies show, long-term data. So we talked a lot about, you know, the physical symptoms with um, with thyroid disease, um, where they go, if they go untreated from a long-term perspective, what potentially can happen to the body? Do Does cancer form? Um, is there heart health issues? You know, if it goes unchecked for too long, what, what, what normally happens? A lot of things, right? Cardiovascular coronary artery disease is a big one when it comes to thyroid. Um, but yeah, and you think about it, anything that affects metabolism, right? So if your metabolism's not running well, that could theoretically increase your risks of cancers. I mean, why not? It's, it's metabolism. Um, yeah, coronary artery disease is a huge one. Um, you're probably gonna become obese. And then we know what everything is correlated with obesity, cancers, heart disease, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, and you're just not gonna feel well. And then when you don't feel well, you get depressed. And then when you get depressed, it's like this cycle, right? So long-term, it's just, the symptoms will just get worse and worse and worse. If your bowels are slowing down, you're not pooping. We all know how that affects the hormones around here because then your hormones start backing up and you just, I mean, it literally affects every system. Anything else you wanna share as it relates to the thyroid? Oh, one question. A lot of people say, and they don't dismiss it this way, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and so I, I don't mean it to sound like they don't take it seriously, but you can live without a thyroid. Well, yeah, if you take hormone replacement. Right. So, you know, some people go through things and they're just simply not getting better than, you know, um, and, you know, some people might think rationally or irrationally. Well, what's the big deal? Because at the end of the day, if I don't have a thyroid, I can just take medication. And I can regulate myself. Um, so I'm, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm being somewhat dismissive. But um, for those that don't have a thyroid, what what do they have to do? They have to take hormone replacement therapy. I mean, if they took out the whole entire thyroid and they have no <laughs> thyroid gland, if you don't take medication, I mean, you're 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 not gonna live, right? So it's like you have to. Right. But when you say hormone replacement therapy, you're talking about, I interpret that as testosterone, but there's a lot of people that don't do that. They just simply take medication. Okay. So when I mean hormone replacement, I'm talking about thyroid hormone replacement. And what, what are those medications? So there's a lot of them. So you've got your synthetics, which is what, you know, traditionally is prescribed synthetic T4. So that's like your synthoid, your levothyroxine. Um, then you have, you even have synthetic T3s, which some people do add on um, because they realize that the patient needs more than just T4, they need T3. Um, and then you have your more natural medications, um, like the ones that we use here, the natural bioidentical ones. Um, and typically the ones that we use have both T4 and T3, pretty close to the same exact ratio that we produce in our body. So it's like it's like literally the most natural, best next best thing you can get to what our bodies naturally produce. Um, and that's that's what we use here. 
And how often should one test their thyroid? It depends on what's going on. You know, if you're trying to adjust their medications and get them to a good euthyroid state, um, it might be as frequent as every six weeks to two or three months. Um, once they're on a more stable rhythm, you're looking at more like six to 12 months, depending on how stable they are. And what about somebody who hasn't had any thyroid issues in the past? Should, is there just running labs every two years to check your thyroid important thing to do? Or do you only just check it once you start feeling like you have some symptoms? That's a great question. And I don't know if I know the right answer to that. But I would say for preventative purposes, once a year is not bad. I always tell patients if they have any predispositions or any family history, you got to get checked once a year. Like you have to, right? Because if you know you're at increased risk, then you need to do it. Other people who, you know, don't have any risk factors, they don't have, you know, any risk of family history or, or any of that. Um, it depends on their symptoms, right? I mean, if they're having symptoms, we want to look at it. If their thyroid panel is beautiful and then they, they feel great and they don't have any issues, then maybe they don't need it once a year, right? I mean, I guess it just depends. Depends on the person. Well, we asked the, our guests to leave us with five takeaways. So you know how this works. So get outside and get your vitamin D. Super important for the thyroid. Um, stress management, super important for the thyroid. I do tell people this sometimes, even though you may be very stressed, stress is a perceived notion, right? Because your body doesn't know what stress is. You tell your body what stress is. So I always tell people with thyroid issues to kind of um, decrease their stress, practice mindfulness, practice meditation, do something to trick your brain to thinking you're not stressed because your thyroid's gonna respond to that. The mind is a very powerful thing. So that's a long number two. Um, three, eat a, eat a balanced diet. Eat a balanced diet because if you get all the phytonutrients in the diet, you're going to get all those minerals and lovely things that the thyroid needs to produce. If you're going to eat the same thing consistently, you're probably deficient or lacking in something. Um, number four, if you have any symptom and you go to the doctor and they tell you your labs are normal and you don't feel well, don't believe them. <laughs> keep digging, keep searching, get a second opinion, a third opinion, whatever you need to do, you know, find a more holistic provider, um, functional medicine, wherever you are and, and get to the bottom of it because you're not crazy. And where am I? I'm at five now. You're number five. Yeah. I guess just be active every day because again, when it comes to, to thyroid health and cellular sensitivity, if you're not moving, you're, you're not moving and that's not good. Your body needs to flow. So just try to be as active as much as you can. Mavis, it's been a treat as always. Thank you very much for your insights and your knowledge. And uh, we look forward to having you back on another topic someday. I'm excited. Thanks. This has been a production of Optimal Bio. Optimal Bio is CEO Tyler Brannon, podcast host and partner Jim Baker, medical director Greg Brannon, production assistance by Core Media, Beth Grabencourt, administrator, Kevin Duthu, executive producer. The podcast can be found on our website, optimalbio.com, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our theme song is Sunwave by Paradiso, provided by Epidemic Sound.